The Old Testament reading is Jeremiah 31, 7 through 14. This is what the Lord says. Sing with joy for Jacob. Shout for the foremost of the nations. Make your praises heard and say, Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. See, I will bring them from the land of the north and gather them from the ends of the earth. Among them will be the blind and the lame, expectant mothers and women in labor. A great throng will return. They will come with weeping. They will pray as I bring them back. I will lead them beside streams of water on a level path where they will not stumble, because I am Israel's father, and Ephraim is my firstborn son. Hear the word of the Lord, you nations. Proclaim it in distant coastlands. He who scattered Israel will gather them and will watch over his flock like a shepherd. For the Lord will deliver Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine, and the olive oil, the young of the flocks and herds. They will be like a well-watered garden, and they will sorrow no more. Then young women will dance and be glad, young men and old as well. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. I will satisfy the priests with abundance, and my people will be filled with my bounty, declares the Lord. The word of the Lord. Good morning again, everyone. Would you join me as we pray? Father, we pray that you would meet us, meet us during this time, wherever we're coming from this morning, whatever our motivation is for being here, would you step into our stories in a profound way, give us answers to the questions that baffle us, would you comfort our pain, would you meet us in our suffering, and would you guide us home to you? We pray that you would help those of us who belong to this church to live the kinds of lives that go along with the knowledge that you are good and you are trustworthy and you are remaking our world into a place of forgiveness and of love. And if we're here this morning with more questions than answers, if this is an experiment in our spiritual journey being here this morning, I pray that you would meet us, that you would let us find answers to our questions and let us be courageous enough to follow the truth wherever it might lead us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. If Jessica had continued to read into the next verse, she would have read, this is what the Lord says, a voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And we looked at this passage just briefly as we opened up our study of Jeremiah. And Ramah is a place, it's a city, which was also a deportation center for Israelites as they were shipped off into exile. So now you get the idea of why Rachel is weeping. And this image was used for and during the Holocaust, that Rachel was weeping for her six million children that were being slaughtered. Rachel is a historical figure 
in the Bible, but she also has this timeless character. She shows up again and again, and she's the actual historical mother of the northern tribes of Israel. Israel split in two, and we have been talking about Israel as being the recipients of Jeremiah's letter, and that's right in some way, but it's a metonym because Israel had divided, and the northern kingdoms, Rachel's children, had been in captivity and eviscerated for over a hundred years from 722, and Judah, the southern tribes, had survived a little bit longer, but now they had been overrun by Babylon, the new power in the Middle East. But you see, Jeremiah is writing primarily to this southern tribe, Judah, but the promises relate to the entire kingdom. And it's very interesting because all of these promises, Israel would not have been satisfied were they just to apply to Judah in Babylonian captivity because God had made promises to the entire nation. And here, Jeremiah actually includes both. He includes Ephraim, which was Rachel's son. And this was the name that the Bible authors have for the northern tribes who, for all practical purposes, had not existed for more than a century. And he's saying metaphorically to Rachel and to all of Israel that they're not forgotten, that his promises still stand. Rachel, you see, is weeping, and God is drawn to tears. They're not forgotten, dear Rachel. I haven't forgotten my promises, God seems to be saying. God's comfort, you see, Rachel is a historical but a timeless character, and God's comfort and the way that his promises work create this time dilation that stretches across time. You see, God doesn't belittle Rachel's tears. Get over it. These promises are still in effect. So stop crying. Your people will return. But he does reframe her tears through Jeremiah. He says that they're not in vain, that he will do something new. In fact, the thing that he will do new has already begun, and it's already taking place in the present. There's a hidden, an underlying reality that stretches backward into time past and way, way forward into time future. And theologians have a name for this type of thinking, combining the Greek words eschatos, last, and ology, the study of eschatology. And in Christian theology, it's not just the study of the end times. It's not just all of the bad things that God's going to rain down on the sinful people. It's not that at all. And it's not just a time that is to come. But what eschatology is and what Jeremiah is getting out here is he's talking about a certain future that is simultaneously rooted in the past and the future, and is active and experienced in the present. Jürgen Moltmann, who was a, a German theologian, said, Christianity is eschatology. Christianity is hope. 
It's forward-looking, and it's forward-moving, and therefore also revolutionizing and transforming the present. The future is pulled into the present, and that's what Jeremiah is doing here. All theology is eschatological. And every time I use that word, I kind of giggle because I have a 13-year-old humor, but it kind of changes the thought about that term. But returning to serious Bible exegesis here, the, the English translations really make a mess of this passage. And it's not the fault of the translators. It's just that we don't have terms that match up with the terms that Jeremiah is using. Jeremiah's verb tenses are all over the place, in, but in English, they're all future or imperfect for you grammar nerds. What Jeremiah is doing here is he's mashing together the past and the present and the future and talking about them as if they're all happening at the same time. Sing for joy because God, I, will bring them from the land of the north and gather them from the ends of the earth. You see future tense in English. Among them will be the blind and the lame, expectant mothers and women in labor. A great throng will return. They are stuck. They're totally unable to unstuck themselves, to save themselves. But there is hope because God, because eschatology God will gather his children once more, both Ephraim and Judah, all of Israel. But here's what's weird. There is no will bring. There is no will gather or will return. That is not what Jeremiah says. In Hebrew, these terms are in the perfect tense, which is an action that has already happened in the past. What is going on here? Well, linguists reflecting upon the way that these tenses are used call this the prophetic perfect because it's something that is so certain to happen from our perspective that they speak of it as if the future is already past. The future is taking place in the present, the prophetic future. God's promises, in a sense, create a singularity where time bends in on itself. And what will be, it already is. In fact, in a sense, there is no will be. This is general relativity, right? Einstein would be so proud to hear Jeremiah talking about this in this way because time is not linear, but past, present, and future are happening simultaneously. This was so, what was so mind-bending about Einstein in the 20s and 30s. And here Jeremiah is using that same sort of idea to get across something so important and so powerful that from God's perspective, all of this is happening now. Jeremiah, help these people take ownership of that. Help these people live into that future now. And then he says in verse 3, the Lord appeared to us 
saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love, see, sort of past tense, and have drawn you with unfailing kindness. Verse 4, I will build you up again. And now Jeremiah is just toying with us because the Hebrew is not represented very well in this English at all. In fact, this is one of those rare places where the King James Version actually gets it better or more accurately. And what he's saying here is, again, I will build thee and thou shalt be built. And that sentence really is just two Hebrew words, banah, banah. One of them is imperfect. One of them is perfect. That building has happened, is happening, and will happen. It's very different from how we think about time. And what Jeremiah is saying here is, though Judah is embedded and living under the immense gravity of exile, the un unalterable here and now, that God's past promises spoken again in the, in the present, they are what determine the future. God's unfailing love that has never ceased, His un her everlasting love, His unfailing kindness determines the future. You see, not your strength. Not your sin, not Babylonian exile, not your present realities, not your past, not your character, but God's character, God's promises. They are the reason for hope. And it's His promises open up sort of a wormhole between the now and the then and the future. It connects us in the present to what he has done, is doing, and will do, as if it is all taking place simultaneously. That's eschatology. But there's also an expense. And I couldn't think of another good physics word to represent expense. I'm sure there's some of you out there that maybe work for Intel that could come up with one right off the top of your head, but this eschatology is expensive. There's a cost. Verse 11, for the Lord will deliver Jacob and he will redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. Redeem, you see, is a cost word. It's an expense word. It's delivering someone out of slavery, out of an oppressive situation by making payment. God is saying He will be the one that will pay for them to be released from slavery. But who is He paying? Where does the payment go? Is it the Babylonians that He's paying? What's a good question? Because Jeremiah doesn't answer it directly in that particular passage or that text. But this idea of redemption is huge in Scripture. And it's a story that each and every book is telling to some degree, that God's stepping in 
to redeem Judah, to redeem Ephraim or Israel is from exile is in some way representative of the whole story of God stepping into the world and redeeming us, buying us out of our own exile, our own slavery. It's the larger story in miniature. Now, who does he pay? Where's the ledger? Who's holding the ledger that shows a debit and a credit? Whenever anyone is wronged, think about this relationally. When you are wronged, a debt has been created, essentially. And in criminal courts, if someone has wronged someone and broken the law, what happens? That debt is paid off by incarceration. They pay a debt to society to get out of exile. If it happens in civil courts, we normally talk about this as the offended party being paid restitution. You see there, in both situations, a debt has been created that has to be paid for the relationship, either to society or to the offended party, to be restored. In your personal life, whenever you choose to forgive someone, which means restoring the relationship without requiring payment, where does the debt go? If you allow them back into your life after a wrong, without requiring payment, you forgive them, where does that debt go? Relational debts are always paid. And we use a variety of forms of either incarceration or restitution. We inflict pain upon them. We inflict shame upon them. We use hostile words that we shout at them. We can pay down the debt by extracting, you see, restitution from them. Or we never let them out. We incarcerate them and keep them in that space, refusing to forgive. And in some way, you guys have experienced this, I've experienced this, it makes you feel better. You know you're wronged, and if I inflict pain upon the person that wronged me, it pays down that debt. And I begin to see them differently because I feel better. And in some way, that debt feels like it's been removed. It's been paid down by their making restitution, by their being incarcerated. Or maybe you're not quite so confrontational. And so you just choose to burn their reputation down with other people. You secretly undermine them at work or you... Just sit at home and you stew, you seethe, you dream these elaborate dreams of their failure, of them walking off a cliff, getting hit by a bus, and it makes you feel better. Now, the passive approach usually takes longer, and what usually happens is that we get incarcerated, right, because it gets into our soul, and it makes us anxious, it makes us more and more broken, and so their debt gets imposed upon us because we don't deal with it. We don't offload it. We just absorb it. And then generally, we give it to someone else. Relational debts are always paid. 
It doesn't disappear. But are there other options? Are there other ways to deal with these relational debts? What if you choose not to pay it down with them being incarcerated or requiring restitution? What if you choose not to return evil for evil? What is happening then? You're paying. You're choosing not to inflict it on them and not to simply let it sit in your bank account accruing anxiety and meanness, but you pay it. You deal with it. When you forego revenge and you instead pursue kindness, you're choosing to pay off the debt. And you're redeeming, you see, that relationship. That's redemption. That's the story of God redeeming his people. Now, Ben Affleck is not the greatest actor in the world, but I kind of like him as a director. He's made three really superb movies. I think they're all set in Boston, but the one that I really like is called The Town. And he is acting in this as well, and he's a bank robber, and he develops a relationship with a woman who was a victim of the bank robbery, but they fall in love. And eventually, however, the FBI informs her that this person that she's now in love with is actually the person who has done the bank robbery, and she can't forgive him. She chooses not to forgive him, not only for the robbery itself, but for the months of lies that he's been willing to live, live with. And so he leaves the town. But before leaving, he buries some of the money that he stole from that particular bank in a place that he knows she'll find it, in this garden she always tends to. And he leaves her a note that she's sure to find. And he tells her to use this money for better things than he could have ever thought of or that he would have ever chosen to do it. And so she renovates this hockey stadium with this money for underprivileged youth to play hockey in in uh, this area of South Boston. And in the letter, he says this, you can change your life, but you can't ever pay for what you've done. It's so true, isn't it? We can change our lives, we can change our relationship, but those debts follow us around. We can't get rid of them unless someone pays for them. We walk around incarcerated by others or in self-imposed incarceration, and we can't figure out a way to pay it. But someone can pay it. The other person can choose to pay it. In telling Israel that his love is everlasting. God is saying that I will be that person for you. Despite centuries of sin, God chooses to redeem them out of slavery at no cost to them and at great cost to himself, to rescue them from incarceration without requiring restitution. And this, friends, this is the story of the Bible. This is the story of the world. Because what the Bible 
tells is the story of God redeeming not just Israel in this one circumstance, but redeeming the entire world from exile. The physical and the historical image of exile is meant to be an image for the larger exile, the larger slavery of humanity. An exile from, or redemption from the exile of sin. Now, this is a word we don't like all that much. But what it essentially means is any movement away from God and His goodness and His purpose for the world. And the more that we try to save ourselves, the more that we try to redeem ourselves, it's like those TV shows that used to use quicksand for every time they wanted the, the um, protagonist to get stuck. And they would get stuck in quicksand and they'd wiggle and they'd get a little bit more and then they'd get more frantic and try to run and they could never get and then they'd sink and die in quicksand. I don't think that ever actually happens. But that's the image of sin. Is it that the harder that we try to rescue ourselves, to save ourselves, the deeper we get into it and the more stuck we get. We have to have, you see, the hero come and take us out of the quicksand. In the Old Testament, it chronicles centuries of Israel moving away from God, choosing to live by its own authority, by its own, seeking its own autonomy. And what God does is He chooses to forgive them. He chooses to bring them home. And there's a cost. There's always a cost with love, right? There's always a cost in any of our relationships where we choose to love someone, where we choose to not allow their actions to dictate the termination of the relationship, but we move through it, there's always a cost. Whenever we place our affection on other people, especially when our love isn't reciprocated or maybe abused, there's a cost. So imagine the cost implied in everlasting love, in eternal faithfulness, in God saying there is nothing that you can do to disearn my affection. There's nothing that you can do, Israel, in town, to walk away in such a way that I won't pursue you. For God, this means not just the cost of the departure We all feel that, right, that relational cost when someone walks away. But he chooses also to pay the cost of return, of redemption. He pays the cost to have them back. And it's more than just words. It's more than just esoteric promises. But the future, the future is collapsing into the present. And the Old Testament paints this picture through exile, through exodus, through the failure of the monarchy, through the misuse of the law, of this need that all of us as humans have that cannot be met by ourselves and anything within the confines of time as we know it. But God who stands outside of time, and he comes in and he rescues us in the person of a redeemer. And Peter The Jew, the follower of Jesus, says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold 
that you were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish and without defect. You see, it wasn't just a promise, but somewhere in our future, Jesus comes and he pays that debt, or in Israel's future, in a real way. He chooses to absorb the cost, to absorb the sin, to eradicate it at a cost that's infinitely more expensive than your debt. So now we're called to live into that future. That gives us hope that God's everlasting kindness, no matter what type of exile you are in, no matter what is going on in your life, you can have a future that is dictated by God's promises and not the future that you can see in your time frame or only within your human lens. Let's pray that that would be reality for us. Father, we pray that as we continue through this story that you were telling us through Jeremiah, that you would continue to be with us, that you would continue to show us how you long to bring us out of exile, even when it's self-imposed, especially when it's self-imposed. And I pray that we would discontinue all of the silly games that we play, that we have our lives together, that we can fix what is wrong with us, that we can determine our story that we can make our future work for us. And I pray instead that we would be humble, that we would see our limitations, and that we would cling to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.